So hi, Stephen. Hi. Uh, so we're going to, to talk about your journey. Good. So where would you like me to begin, Serge? How far back <laughs> do you want to go? Well, um, I saw, I had the, the pleasure to see a few weeks ago um, a performance of your chamber opera at the Rubin Museum and uh, putting Buddha uh, not in terms of somebody who was spouting out uh, great wisdom, but within the context of his life. Yeah. And I found this really very powerful. And so maybe in parallel, talking about Buddha's journey, human being, ideas, uh, transcendence, uh, life, uh, and your own journey as a human being. Okay. Um, the, um, I suppose, I mean, all of my adult life, I've been working as a, uh, a practicing Buddhist, uh, initially as a, as a monk in India and then in Korea, and more recently, since I've been back in the West, as a writer and a teacher. And that's really, over the last 40 years, all that I have done. And everything that else like writing operas and so on is a is a spin-off from from this basic vocation that I've had but perhaps the interesting question is where did this uh, vocation uh, begin and to be quite frank it's very difficult to me to pinpoint that I, I can put I can think of certain instances in my childhood where I became conscious of uh, of the tragic dimensions of life um, I grew up without a father. My father and my mother separated when I was quite young. And um, I always felt that something was missing in uh, my childhood. Um, I was also very much part of the 1960s generation, which uh, kind of threw everything up in the air and uh, introduced uh, very you know, non-European ideas, ideas of, of Buddhism, of Taoism, of Hinduism. Um, there was an opening in the 60s to cultures way beyond those in which I had grown up. There was also the exploration of uh, mind-expanding uh, substances uh, like LSD and so on, which I was also involved with. And I guess all of those things together um, sort of came to a head when I left high school at the age of 18 and had done very badly in my high school graduation. I effectively had failed that. And this gave me um, what I now think of as an opportunity. Uh, instead of going to college, which I would have done had I done my exams properly, um, I went overland to India. Uh, I was about 19 and I uh, hitchhiked and took buses then um, within a couple of days of crossing the Indian border, I ended up in Dharamsala, which is the capital in exile of uh, the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan refugee community. And effectively, that's where I stopped my traveling and uh, turned my attention inwards. And from that moment, really, I became fully focused on uh, Buddhism. Now, I was interested. Sorry. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the sense of moments where inflection point, inflection points, changes, and uh, things of that nature. So, um, uh, how did you arrive in Dharamsala? Was it something that you had planned? 
Is it that you just uh, happened to be there? Something just made you stay? What, what happened to, uh, to create that change? Again, difficult to say in retrospect, but I think um, I was probably in the back of my mind on some kind of spiritual journey or quest. Now, I probably wouldn't have phrased it like that at the time, but I think as a young person, quite sensitive, um, quite confused, um, quite idealistic in many ways, I was definitely looking for something. Um, I hadn't intended when I left England uh, to go to India. I hadn't intended when I arrived in India to go to Dharamsala. And when I did arrive in Dharamsala, uh, I very quickly decided I would stay. I think possibly one of the most um, key moments was meeting the Dalai Lama himself. He was then a young man of 37. He had not been out of India. Uh, I think he'd been to Thailand once. He certainly wasn't known in the West at that point at all. And I was extraordinarily impressed with this young man. And likewise, the uh, community of Tibetans around him. I'd never met people like this before. Um, they were people who were in physically or materially in great straits, exiles, refugees, uh, basically scraping a living. And yet they radiated this extraordinary sense of uh, well-being, uh, of self-confidence. Uh, and um, at that time, there had just begun a program in Buddhist studies at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives in Dharamsala. I signed up for that, and I never really looked back. Um, so I think it's those things coming together at that point. I think also another so, fact... So can yeah. I interrupt you just because there's something very striking that you said you arrived, and you're very impressed by the Dalai Lama and by the people, the, the ordinary people around him, and by that quality of radiating despite all of the... Uh, uh, trials and tribulations it went through. So it sounds like uh, from that place of being a bit confused as a youth, uh, you see something and you say, wow, that quality, that way of being in life is what I want. Uh, is, there, is that how you might put it? Or uh, That's how I might put it. Uh, whether I would have put it like that at the time, I honestly don't know. But probably something of that order, yes. Uh, I, you can't also take out of this equation the fact that Dalai Lama, Tibetans, this exerts an enormous romantic attraction. Mm -hmm. um, the, this is something way outside anything I knew when I was growing up, and yet it did already exist as a kind of <clears throat> ideal or uh, something that our culture had sort of elevated to something very, very exotic, very strange. Uh, possibly something quite profound, something very little understood. And I think another factor was that um, I found myself here with an opportunity to explore something about which uh, we knew very little in the West. So I think there was also a sense of embarking on an adventure. It was like, in a way, uh, perhaps like some of the explorers in Africa in the 19th century. Uh, you know, you, f you have an uncharted territory. And that is a tremendous attraction to actually explore that, um, see where it goes. Um, there was very little available in English on, in those days. Um, you could have read pretty much every book there was in, on Buddhism, at least for a general readership, you know, maybe 20 or 30 volumes. So it was, it was, it was really a, an, an opportunity, I think, to, 
uh, to embark on some sort of adventure. Yeah. Uh, I can't separate that from my own personal needs and so forth and so on, but I can't, I, I would be, it would be foolish also to leave that aside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that the, it's it's uh, it's really the context of adventure, of leaving, of traveling, of meeting, and uh, in the in that adventure, meeting people who are remarkable. So that the adventure is not just about seeing something different, but uh, is really that uh, potential of self development, enrichment, stimulation. That's correct, and I think it also needs to be borne in mind that I wasn't all by my, all by myself. Uh, there were a number of people of roughly the same age, same background, same interests, same anxieties as me, who were also traveling to India at that time and landing up in places like Dharamsala. So you felt as though you were part of a kind of a communal adventure as well. There was a generational fascination. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, that's what I put my mm-hmm. money on. And being a rather stubborn person, I stuck at it. <laughs> So, yeah, that's really, I, I, I really point to that time as the beginning of the life that has subsequently unfolded. Um, as you may know, um, I didn't stay with Tibetan Buddhism that long. Uh, well, I was there for about seven or eight years, which I suppose is quite a long time. But in any case, in the end, I parted company with the Tibetan tradition. I went, I went and trained in Zen in South Korea. Um, I then disrobed, I got married, and I came back to England, lived in a lay Buddhist community, and started my uh, work as a writer and as a teacher. And that's kind of what I'm still doing now. Yeah, yeah. And so the the disrobing um, goes together with that concept of being an agnostic uh, and not wanting to be trapped in dogma. Um, I suppose so. Um, It's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, Agnosticism was not really an idea that I really started started to develop as an element in my understanding of Buddhism probably until 20 years after I disrobed, uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, What I found more the problem was that uh, because I trained in different Buddhist traditions, I couldn't really identify with either the Tibetan or the Korean or even perhaps other forms of Buddhism. I saw myself as a Buddhist, but I didn't see myself as a Buddhist belonging to any particular school. And that makes it quite difficult to remain uh, a monk or a priest because you you have different allegiances and you don't you want to represent something that, you know, is true to who you are and what you're doing. I didn't want to dress up in the uniform of a Tibetan or a Korean or a, a Sri Lankan monk. Um, and also, I also was having serious doubts about the value of monasticism in general. Monasticism provided me with a wonderful opportunity for training, in other words, for having no distractions to um, take me away from my interest in Buddhist ideas, in meditation, study and so forth and so on. Um, but after I completed that process, after about 10 years as a monk, um, I felt very much that um, I wasn't cut out really for the monastic lifestyle anyway. It had served its purpose, at least for the time being, um, and I really did not want to continue as a monk. Um, agnosticism 
is an idea I've subsequently put a lot of time and thought into, but I don't think it's really quite fair to say that that was the reason I disrobed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it's, a, it's a following a sense that you had gotten what you needed out mm-hmm. of that lifestyle and that environment, but then felt cramped by it and needed to step out. Yeah, cramped is a good word. Um, I'd almost say um, constrained. Mm -hmm. Uh, I felt that I was somehow stuck um, in a a role that was not able really to fulfill what I deeply wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yes, it it, it was a constraint. And uh, subsequently in my my writing and, and my teaching, I felt similarly constrained or cramped, if you like, by the um, by some of the doctrines, the Buddhist doctrines. And I think here we move into the agnostic idea. Um, I had great difficulty accepting some of the traditional Buddhist ideas uh, like reincarnation, the law of karma, um, different realms of existence, supernatural power, experience as really essential to what the Buddha taught. And uh, more and more, I sought to divest myself of these, what I would probably now call somewhat uh, atavistic uh, beliefs, um, in such a way that I could liberate my Buddhist practice from being, you know, constrained by those ideas. And I did find, in fact, that in doing so, it opened up the possibilities of Uh, living a a Buddhist life that was much more able to engage with the contemporary world in which we live here uh, in modernity. Uh, So all of this kind of went together. But it's at that point where I advanced the idea that we could be agnostic about reincarnation, about law of karma, uh, which means you don't have to reject these ideas because that would be equally arrogant in a way um, because you simply cannot know whether you're going to be reborn after death or whether there's some law of karma governing things. I don't have a clue. But I don't think it's necessary either to believe in them or to reject them. And that's why I consider myself agnostic around Mm -hmm, those things. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm happy just to settle with the fact that I don't know. Uh, And also to acknowledge that I don't think these are actually very essential questions anyway. Um, Whether they exist or not, whether rebirth exists or not, it's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't pay, play any significant role in how I respond to the situations of life as they present me, uh, as they present themselves to me on a moment-to-moment basis. Yeah. So, so I'm hearing a sense of um, um, negotiating with limitations, with the limits, constraints, um, and making finding a path of liberation from that. That's correct, yeah, which I think is very much in tune with what the Buddha taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you see with the, with the story of the Buddha too, you know, he also was not willing to stay with the constraints of his domestic life. He wasn't willing to stay within the constraints of traditional Indian religious belief. Um, he sought to somehow uh, divest himself of those, uh, the, those limits and as a result, he opened up a way of life that I think still has um, considerable uh, validity and appeal today. But I don't believe that um, traditional Buddhism um, 
is, is, is able really to address the full range of issues that confront us in this day and age. So, but interesting when you say the, the Buddha freed himself from the constraints. Uh, yeah. I think you also point out that um, he's not somebody who stayed um, in the confines of a um, convent or a, a monastery or uh, just meditating aside from society. He very much came back to society. So in a way, he's somebody who, on the one hand, freed himself from some constraints. On the other hand, was very much interacting with the society of his time. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's really, I think, an illusion to think of the Buddha as someone who created a monastery and then spent the rest of his life meditating. Uh, this is completely at odds with the way the early community was established. It's at odds with how the Buddha's own teaching life is described in the early text. Uh, this was a man who didn't uh, believe in monasteries. Uh, he created a um, what we would call a, um, a, a community of wandering mendicants, um, a bit like the Franciscans uh, in, in, in the West. And um, the only time the monks and the nuns would gather together uh, as a community would be during the rains period, when, in other words, they simply didn't have much choice but to sort of just camp in a park somewhere and, and meditate and discuss things. But it's only later that Buddhism became a monastic religion in the way that we understand it now. So, yes, he was very much someone who, in his own life and also in how he encouraged others to live, was to be one that was maximally socially engaged, uh, which would mean that throughout his uh, teaching career of about 45 years, much of that time was spent wandering from village to village, from town to town, from city to city, and uh, just interacting with the community as uh, was appropriate um, in those uh, days. And um, again, I find that a very inspiring example. Mm -hmm. So very, very, very inspiring. So in that sense, uh, reflecting on what it is uh, that sustains you of, um, exactly. yeah, no, it's very much a life that is um, lived in response to the demands and the pressures and the suffering that you find yourself exposed to, as we do, um, you know, all the time. Um, it's about an appropriate response to the situation in life. It's not about establishing a kind of a fixed model of monks in monasteries, for example, as the best way to live, mm -hmm. uh, but rather to actually uh, have a flexible lifestyle that enables you to um, engage with the world in ways that best are best adapted to your own particular skills and needs. So um, one of the projects that you've already alluded to in this interview is the uh, this opera, Mara, that I've been working on for some years. Uh, this is a very unconventional way to present Buddhism, um, but it's something that I feel through the connections with uh, a composer and a theatre director and others, uh, that has suddenly come to fruition. And um, this has enabled me to engage with a form of art, really, um, that I would never have uh, imagined I would have done in the past. Um, and yet it's been enormously fulfilling uh, to find a language, a musical language, a poetic language, um, a, a dramatic language in which to communicate uh, a person's life, um, his values, his teachings, uh, some of the mythology of early Buddhism, and, and make that available to an audience who may not 
be particularly interested in Buddhist religion, but who can be deeply moved by what is essentially a profoundly human story. Um, it's the humanity of the Buddha that I think speaks to us today. Um, whether he was enlightened in some extraordinary way is kind of secondary to the fact that you know, he lived his life uh, in a way in which the whole of his humanity was afforded its optimal uh, expression and uh, form. Uh, and, and I think the teaching of the Buddha is not to turn us into little clones of uh, Buddhist monks or nuns, but rather to uh, enable us, to give us the courage and the vision uh, to live our lives to the full, according to a certain set of ethical norms and philosophical ideas and contemplative practices, but very much seeing those things as a, a means to uh, enable us to flourish fully as persons. Yeah, yeah. So, so flourish as persons, um, engaging with the world, responding to the challenges, the sufferings of the world in an appropriate manner. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and this is an open-ended, ongoing process. Um, uh, the, it's always tempting to sort of say, ah, now I've figured this out. Now I've sort of got Buddhism under wraps. Now I can write a book about this. Now I can set up a, some kind of institution or whatever that will teach this to others. But as soon as you do that, you've basically frozen it again. And you've, you've, you've established it into yet another structure, into another hierarchy, into another set of dogmatic ideas. Um, there's always going to be the danger of that. Um, I don't think that's what the Buddha intended to happen with his teachings. There's plenty of warnings against that, but that didn't prevent subsequent generations from turning Buddhism into yet another dogmatic belief system with yet other hierarchies of power, with yet further concentrations of authority within elite groups of priests in this case. Um, it doesn't have to go that way. Uh, whether we can evolve in our time uh, forms and practices that uh, are somehow less liable to get locked into that sort of pattern, I would hope we can, but I'm not naive enough to think that we will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So part of it is a struggle between the ossification the, you know, of, of what's alive uh -huh. versus what's alive. Uh, part of it is uh, being prisoner. We all prisoners. Buddha was maybe also prisoner of the culture of his time, versus um, having a handle on the human condition. And um, what your work has been is to separate what is maybe cultural uh, uh -huh. in some of the Buddhist ideas versus what is actually still fresh in the sense that it speaks to us about the human condition and how we can adapt in our time, even though those times are very different from what they were when Buddha lived. Exactly. That's the challenge, yeah. And I don't think we're the first people to have encountered that challenge. Every time the Buddhism has found itself in a new culture, be it China, Japan, Korea, or wherever, it has had to undergo a similar process of effectively reinventing itself, being true to the principles that underpin it, but no lot, but not being attached to forms that are very much culturally determined, like the forms of India in the case of the Chinese or the Koreans. Um, 
we have to be very careful because obviously we could maybe discard something that is essential without realizing it. We might just think it's some old-fashioned belief and we get rid of it, but it might turn out to bear, to bear more weight than we, uh, we, we thought. So this is a, it's a gradual process. It's a process we have to exercise considerable uh, care and vigilance, but it's an unavoidable process. And the difference between modernity and the kinds of societies in which Buddhism uh, developed in, uh, in pre-modern Asia uh, are considerable. And thereby, I feel that the process of, 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 of transformation that Buddhism itself will have to undergo will be con of a considerable uh, difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh, we're moving from pre-modernity into post-modernity. And we're doing this in a way very quickly. Um, take Tibet, for example. They lived in a, basically a pre-modern world intact until about 1959, where suddenly they're expelled uh, into exile. And um, they land in India and elsewhere in the world, and they have to somehow figure out how what they know, what they value and want to preserve quite correctly as their culture is able to speak to the conditions of our time. Um, and I've been fortunate to be witness to that uh, through my life. And... Um, I can observe two things. I can observe that in many ways, Buddhism is very conservative. It, it is more concerned with preserving these teachings and these practices. But at the same time, if you look at a bigger historical picture, you see that it's a tradition that has managed to recreate itself on numerous occasions. And I think it still preserves the vitality that would enable it to uh, transform itself in a way that would make it speak more directly and and uh, and, and effectively uh, mm -hmm. two times now. And so as you talk about these tensions uh, between conservative, rigid, evolving, uh, I'm reminded of um, what happened in the opera itself where in the life of Buddha, uh, there were also tensions and at the end of his life, um, you know, betrayal, danger, um, so very much at odds with the very superficial idea we can have from the outside that uh, being a realized Buddha would have changed his life uh, to, in a way, be free from these kinds of pesky inconveniences. <laughs> uh, well, it, 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 it is true that in the West, I think we have a rather naive and idealistic picture of the Buddha. Uh, Buddhism has communicated to us a legend and a myth about the Buddha, um, which is a very beautiful myth. I, I'm not disputing that, but it has very little to do with the actual life that we can construct in quite some detail, and, and I think accuracy, from the earliest uh, textual materials themselves. Um, and there we do get a much different picture, which is the picture of the Buddha I try to um, present in the opera, of a human being confronted with very human realities and having to work with them and overcome them, a human being who is likewise in a mortal body, subject to sickness and aging and death like everybody else. And um, in this sense, um, uh, 
he, in just because he may be somehow realized or enlightened or whichever word we use there, uh, that I feel only talks to his actual inner state of mind. Um, I do believe that the Buddha was by and large uh, at home in himself, that he had somehow resolved many of the conflicts within his own uh, within his own mind. But that doesn't mean that he can magically somehow transform the world around him or affect other people so that they don't cause him any trouble. He's as much caught up in the com conflicts and the um, problems of the world as anybody else. And the story of the Buddha's life, as we show it in the opera, uh, doesn't try to conceal that at all. And in fact, the opera is called Mara. Mara means the demonic, the devil, um, a figure the, the Buddha uh, is, in, is described as being engaged with from the very beginning of his life right up until the very end. The Buddha's enlightenment is said to be the conquest of Mara. He overcomes these negative forces within himself and frees himself to, in a sense, uh, engage with the world in a way that's not constrained by his greed and fear and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that Mara has disappeared. Mara is refers just as much to the constraints and conflicts of the world as it does to the constraints and conflicts within you. So in the opera Mara, Mara is always on the stage um, from the first scene of the first act until the last scene of the last act, even though Mara may not be ha having a singing or a, a role of any kind, he's always there. And the reason for that is precisely to point out that in conquering Mara, in overcoming the demonic, you don't get rid of him as though he's simply deleted, but you learn how to live with these things and in such a way that you're not impeded by them, but in a strange way, you can actually utilize the energies of those conflicts to drive your own passions and uh, beliefs and uh, insight uh, to have greater impact on the world in which you are. So the opera is really more about Mara than Buddha. Yeah. But, but, in, but on the other hand, you can't really separate the two. I think if we look at this symbolically, Mara is basically the shadow of the Buddha, uh, the B B Buddha, the person, not Buddha, the mythic figure. And you cannot have light without shadow. You cannot have shadow without uh, light. The two go hand in hand. And uh, modern psychology, I think, is very aware of that. And I think it's equally implicit in the Buddhist story, too, that even though he had attained enlightenment and he had all these followers and kings were looking to him for advice, he was still working with his own conflicted humanity. For me, Mark refers to the Buddha's own conflicted humanity, uh, both in his own body, but also in his world, in his society, in his community. Um, he's always working with this stuff. And that's a much more pragmatic way of understanding the practice of the Dharma, uh, the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, it has to do uh, not with believing that one day that you'll be rid of all your problems, but rather learning how to work with your problems on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And so that every, every moment in your life, you are faced with the challenge of overcoming Mara, whether you're the Buddha or whether you're just an ordinary you know, person on the street. That is your. That is our condition. Uh, we are uh, constantly uh, being uh, constrained or 
distorted in our views or somehow in the grip of some fear that prevents us from living a, a, a genuinely flourishing life. Yeah. Um, problem with Mara or craving or greed or hatred, all these things that Buddhism thinks of as a problem, um, is not that they cause you suffering, although they obviously do sometimes, but really the real nature of that problem is it because it pr keeps you stuck. It keeps you trapped. It keeps you from being unable to realize the potential that you have as a person or as a community or as a society. Mm -hmm. That goes to the very core of what the Buddha's teaching is about. But so very, what's very, comes across very strongly visually in, uh, in the opera is uh, Mara is always present. In a conventional sense, uh, Buddha lost because he dies at the end, and the presenting problem at the beginning was uh, that you know the the problem of death that he was mm. hidden this whole thing. So uh, in a way, he loses. Uh, yes. But the what's the the message is is that uh, the human condition is to engage with actually the problem of death or the problem of Mara or the problem of suffering and to realize that it's not going away and that it's a moment-by-moment -moment engagement uh, that is the legacy of Buddha. No, the, um, in fact, the, the opera has two acts. The first act is the conquest of Mara. You could, tongue-in-cheek, think of the second act as the conquest of Buddha. Yeah. Because the, the first act shows the Buddha's victory over Mara, the Enlightenment, everything looked great. Second act, basically, Mara gets his own back. Now, you could think of this as a failure. I don't think of it that way, any more than I think of Christ's crucifixion on the cross as a failure. Uh, it's, a, it's a paradox. It's basically a victory that is won through defeat. And whether it's the Buddha or whether it's Christ, it's the same. Um, both end up dead. Both end up having been abandoned by their followers um, or some of their followers. Both end up being persecuted and nailed to a symbolic cross, as it were. And yet their life as a whole, when we judge it in retrospect, is an enormous vindication of what is humanly possible. In other words, the Buddha may have you know, fallen prey to the forces of Mara that led him to sickness, aging, death, and abandonment and denunciation, all these things. But his teaching survived. Mm -hmm. The Dharma survived. Mm -hmm. uh, and the legacy he left is still with us today. Now, that's an extraordinary achievement uh, to, for a person who lived in the 5th century BC to still be the, you know, the topic of a podcast in 2017. <laughs> uh, very few people's lives will have that will 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 continue to have an impact that long after their deaths. Uh, in fact, I, you can probably count the number on one hand. You've got Socrates, you have Jesus, you have the Buddha, you have uh, Moses perhaps or whatever, but or uh, uh, Muhammad. Very few people have realized what these uh, men uh, achieved and hardly anybody has can talk of, you know, can, 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 can live a life that will continue to be an example for people uh, living centuries uh, later in the future. But in, in this case, uh, we could sum it up with a handle, the power of the spirit, but um, it's actually 
the example of Buddha that gave um, ways of approaching the world that then has been followed by people. So it's the fact that uh, human beings have continued to walk yes. in these footsteps. And that's how, you know, the spirit is not something that is outside, out there, but is an example that has inspired people to apply this approach in their life. And that's why it's continuing. Exactly, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm wary of expressions like the power of the spirit. I know what it means, and it's, um, it's a useful shorthand, but it does have the suggestion that there's some kind of transhuman, uh, something or other, a spirit or God or something that's kind of running the show behind the scenes. We don't need that. I think you, it's interesting you use the word inspiration. Now, inspiration, of course, contains the word spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, it's there, I think, that lies the, the, the victory, as it were, of the Buddha or Christ, is that their lives become an inspiration for the lives of others. They give a sense of hope, they give a sense of courage, they give a sense of, of wisdom, of compassion. And it, but it's only by embodying those qualities within our own particular existences uh, though we can say that the legacy of the Buddha or the legacy of, of Christ has somehow been continued and carrying on. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing magical going on. Mm -hmm. It's not as the Dharma uh, somehow floats free of human conditions. It doesn't. Uh, the Dharma continues and, uh, uh, and, and persists only because individual men and women, individual communities actually apply those values and seek to live by them here and now that we can talk of the continuation and the transmission of these um, of, of these traditions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's a that's a meaning of the transmission of dharma absolutely yeah, yeah. and it's a transmission that's not being sort of you know sort of ma magically uh, uh, transferred from one mind to another um, it's actually going on as we speak now as you know, just think, for example, of the number of occasions in your life where you've just maybe by chance heard someone say something on the radio or read something in a magazine that you just picked up. And yet it's something that has just rung a bell within you. It struck you in a certain way. It's thereby nudged you very slightly into a different course of life that you otherwise may not have taken. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be particularly profound or anything it just comes at the right moment and duh. and it's these kinds of decisive moments uh, perhaps that also help explain my own trajectory in leaving England as a young man going to India doing this doing that bumping into a composer all of these things somehow take us along courses of of, of, of life that we probably are impossible to foresee in advance um, so, the, yeah, I agree with you. The, um, it's these little moments um, that can have enormous impact on us. And I don't know the consequences of this opera, for example, or my books. But all I can do is hope that in producing such works in good faith, hopefully with a good intention, they can continue to somehow you know, transmit the sorts of ideas that I've been engaged with for pretty much all of my life. Great, great. So, Stephen, is this a good place to end? I think that was a fairly good way of wrapping up our conversation. <laughs> yes, I do. I think we can maybe pause there. And, um, 
It's been very, very nice talking to you. And to those of you who are listening to this, um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can find more about my work, uh, particularly in my most recent book called Secular Buddhism, which is a collection of essays. It's quite accessible, published by Yale University Press, came out earlier this year. Uh, and you can also go to my website, which is uh, www.stephenbatchelor.org. And you can find out what I'm doing, where I'm going. And uh, hopefully one day you'll have a chance to see Mara, the opera, which we're now working on trying to find a company that will be willing to, um, to put it on. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you, Serge. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.